Cause I lied and I cheated and I lied a little more But after I did it, I don't know what I did it for I admit that I've been a little immature With your heart like I was the predator In my book of lies, I was the editor And the author, I thought my signature And I apologize for what I did to you Cause what you did to me, I did to you No, 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 baby, no, 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 don't lie Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, today we're back at it once again. Yes. Happy Friday to you and to our listeners. I guess they'll listen to this on different days. Um, what, you know, it was interesting about podcasting. I was listening to Dan Lebetard, who I, as one of my favorite, um, probably the only sports guy I listen to on a regular basis. He's out of Miami and he has a, he's on ESPN radio I guess from 10 to 1, but um, they define their, it's an unsports radio sports show. So they're, they just do all kinds of crazy antic things. Uh, for instance, as in protesting all the stupid things that are said leading up to uh, the Super Bowl, they had uh, Kenny G on every day as their guest and asked him the same question, uh, sports question. That was kind of the stuff they do. So. I like Kenny G. But anyway, one of the things he was talking about was that in terms of understanding uh, kind of the new nature of media, that he does not measure their success by how many uh, distribution sites they have, like 400 to 500 uh, radio stations carry the program. He doesn't uh, do it based on his rating against the other people at 10 o'clock, but it is podcasting. He says that's where they do, you know, they do really well there compared to everybody else. And they're just talking about that being the future of, of things and it's the future is cutting now. edge, right? Here, we're on the for the first time, we're on the cutting edge, right? Right, well, we're the dull edge. It's on demand, like I think you and I were talking about this. It's on demand radio. This is like the fifth podcast I've put out or recorded in 24, like 36 hours. Yeah, you should have said, Bill, let's not do this. I was fired up. All right, all right. I well. might not have anything to say, but <laughs> I, you know, I can, uh, yeah, uh, it's a lot of a lot, a lot of uh. A lot of talking. One thing, I, by the way, one thing. This is uh, this is my word to all uh, the people who are are reacting to everything in the Trump administration. One thing that uh, with this late, late this ruling by the Ninth Court Circuit of Appeals, <clears throat> which you could tell you didn't even have to know what the thing was going to do. Generally, the Ninth <laughs> Ninth District Court of Appeals is it's notoriously for years has been a liberal uh, appellate uh, court, and so they usually. They usually do things accordingly. So I, I do think we are reacting, or, and we don't use the inclusive we. There's an awful lot of reacting to everything. And I think that's probably not not good um, for the country. It, it's not helpful for us to be really vigilant about the things that matter most. I mean, I, again, just jumping on everything just can ultimately get us fatigued 
for the things we really have to care about. And I, and again, I, I'm glad they stopped it, but uh, <clears throat> I think if it goes to the Supreme Court, probably, and by the time it goes to the Supreme Court, I'm sure they'll clean up the initial order and it'll it'll be constitutional. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, there, you, there's a kind of, this is part of the challenge of our culture with the politicization of everything and also with social media and the way that shape rally, it, it feels like you have to have an opinion on everything. Right, right. And yeah. you've got to have a statement on everything. You've got to, and I think it, it is, it's fatiguing. You're right. You get, I mean, you only have so much bandwidth realistically as a human being. And so like, at what point do you just like kill your bandwidth and you're, you, you just right. can't respond? There's a really good piece that appeared on Mockingbird's website, I think Wednesday, by a guy who's a hospice chaplain in Las Vegas. And he <laughs> said, you know what? No one's ever sort of come to me. You know, I've never been with somebody at their dying bed. So you know what? I just didn't get involved in this political issue enough. Right? I was <laughs> I didn't leverage this much. It's just you know that th- those things become relativized in light of ultimate right. life and death and and human connection. So I think there's probably something to be said for a measured kind of civic engagement, not not a civic disengagement, but one that's measured and tempered by a realistic perspective on life. Right. Well, there is, there are things that are worth, um, you know, going to jail for, standing up for, things worth dying for. And, uh, but um, I do think you're right. I think it, the urgency is so easy just to put out two lines and then hit send or whatever and, uh, or hit like. Uh, uh, I think that uh, and that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I think so often too that, that I think the feeling that you need to react or respond to everything oftentimes is like a way to kind of condition your own anxiety. Like if I act and somehow I'll feel less anxious or less stressed out when sometimes it actually, I mean, a lot of the studies show just the opposite actually, <laughs> where the more interaction you do like that on social media and whatnot, you actually oftentimes become more anxious. You fly off the handle more. So yeah, that's not to say that I, I do as I say, not as I do. Also. <laughs> I have, I have to throw one thing else out. That has nothing to do with with anything we just talked about. But um, I did something today that I never have done before, and I actually plugged in and looked and researched how other people outline their sermons. Uh, I'm teaching a homiletics class right now, and I've never taught a homiletics class, uh, but I've uh, you know been preaching for over 25 plus years and giving talks to all kinds of different situations and started my work giving talks to high school kids. Uh, you know, <laughs> I've always, someone said, are you nervous about preaching class? I go, I one time gave a talk to a hundred um, inner city kids who had just been pulled off the basketball courts in order to hear me give a talk. So I can face anything. <laughs> preaching class was, was hardly, uh, it was a fascinating exercise, but that's about it. But I, I have to admit, I, I started looking how people, and, I, and I was, I'm teaching them how to outline a sermon. I go, you know, I, I, I think sometimes I'm kind of idiosyncratic in how I do my preaching. So I said, let, let me look what other people do. And I go, oh, my goodness. I, I just, it just led me into a deep, dark world of what's actually going on in pulpits and, and across America. And, and like this one, and this one website was telling you how to do the outline. They got cute little things, but he said, the most important thing is you don't, don't preach on too many different things. At our church, we only preach on 10 to 15 topics every year. And then they listed the, listed the topics. Good thing Christmas and Easter did make the list. And, That's good. And Jesus shows up once in a while, but oh my goodness, it was, 
it was a little bit disheartening, to say the least. Well, you know, it's interesting. Tim Keller, who's a pretty celebrated preacher, uses a rhetorical strategy that every homiletics professor says is wrong. Like, I've never read a contemporary homiletics book that say this is okay. Like, he'll go out and say, hey, you know, today we're going to talk about, I think this story says this three things. You know, like an Abraham with Sarah, uh, with a Hagar, I think. So, you know, this text is about an exploited woman, a stupid man, a cruel mistress, and a mysterious friend. So let's start with the exploited woman. And he just kind of, it's like a sort of tell him what you're going to tell him. Yeah, tell him. And, and, you know, I, I heard that sermon years ago, and I just, boom, Damn. okay, you know, and so... It's it is interesting. Like I think sometimes rhetorical prejudices, like like uh, yeah, some of these homiletics books, they say, well, people are just so in tune with the biblical stories and the truth that they're to tune out if you make it too obvious. Like, what churches are you? <laughs> wow, that must be nice. Yeah, and the danger I also see with all this is how much space most of these uh, outlines gave for just the interjection of uh, very little that had to do with what I would say, substantive engagement with the text or, for that matter, with life. It's almost like they've already decided what they're going to say, regardless of what the text says. I mean, it's the whole problem of topical preaching. But I don't know. I mean, I love – I mean, in many ways, that's that's kind of what I do. You know, what Tim Keller does is – I mean, I do a version of that, and, you know, I, I still think the best thing to do is, you know, kind of like the uh, sculptor. You know, you try to chip away the truth there and get out of the way of, of – a clear truth that's in the text, but it was just a weird exercise today, and and I uh, was end up being a waste of time. And but it was it was kind of eye opening. <laughs> and just picturing you googling these things. I know, I, I know. It's I've, again, I, I've never done it before, and again, I, I know that sounds stupid. I mean, I've been a parish pastor for twenty five years, but I've this never it never had. I never felt the need or desire to, and and I'm pretty sure that'll be the last time I ever do it, and I will protect my students from it as well, so I won't give them any. <laughs> Yeah, well, it occurs to me too about pre- so often what's focused on in, in preaching classes is the thing that is most situational and has the most variables like form. So, like, I, I just think it, it, it's very tough in a multicultural, multi where, where regions of the country are, are so different and right. denominational things with socioeconomic class and race or so. Like, it's weird to think that you could come up with like here's the here's the sort of layout outline strategy that will work everywhere because I I just think that's naive. Yeah, the, I, I've preached in five or six different country cultural contexts, and I, and I actually I always apologize, you know, when I when I'm somewhere international, like all right, I you know I'm just going to have to do what I'm I'm just going to be me, and I apologize, and we'll just talk about you know what I think this text is telling us tonight and, you know, and, and so, um, and, and it, it worked out okay, but I, I, I get what, I get what you're saying there. I, the fun, I have to tell the story. I was just at Princeton seminary and it was, you know, and this was, I mean, I'm from, you know, grew, I was born in West Virginia, grew up in South Central Pennsylvania. So yeah, this is a brave new world for me. And, uh, and there was an upperclassman who was, uh, yeah, you know, I bumped into. I was there probably the second week, and and uh, so you know, well, you're you're getting ready to be done. He goes, yeah. He says, I'm. So what are you going to do? He goes, well, I'm I'm thinking about getting a PhD in preaching. I just started laughing because I thought he was joking. <laughs> I, just, I, I didn't know you could do that, and I'm still not sure it's a good idea to do it. But uh, at any rate, 
Well, <laughs> I sent you a copy of an article today that I thought was Before we get into that, can we just do one piece of housekeeping? Sure. We have migrated the podcast onto a new site. So if anybody has trouble downloading the podcast, it, it, like for some things, I mean, it should work fine in iTunes, but the new RSS feed is npw.fireside.fm forward slash RSS. So if you need to like resubscribe, just go, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but npw.fireside.fm forward slash RSS. So that will get you, we have a forwarding thing in place, but if it doesn't work, so it's, you know, people, there's a chance people listen to podcasts on all sorts of different apps and right. Android, Apple, and this, and Podbean, Pod, Pod, this, Pod, that. So if you're one of those Pod, this, or that, just re, 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 re refresh <laughs> the feed. Get a new Pod. Yeah. Um, I, I sent you an uh, article. I guess it's from, was it from today's New Yorker or this week's New Yorker? I don't know. It's, it's the New York Magazine. New right? York Magazine. Okay. The New York Times Magazine. New York Times Magazine. Okay. I didn't uh, read And this is Andrew Sullivan's new um, <laughs> series of variety pieces where you can describe the end of Western civilization. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, read it again because you were laughing. That's I guess I should start by saying that this is not a blog, nor is it what one might call a column. It's an experiment of sorts to see if there's something in between those two. Most Fridays from now on, I'll be writing in this space about, among other things, the end of Western civilization, <laughs> the collapse of the Republican, yes, my beagles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it's fun. I do. I find... I, I, oh, this is the Daily... No, this is, yeah, this is New York Magazine. New York Magazine. Okay. okay. All right. So he's going to do a now weekly thing. I still... I, I find... How many? It's amazing how many times have we referenced him in the course of our pie. We got we 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 reference him a lot. We, yeah, several times. We've there. Yeah, we've referenced him several times. Yeah. So one of the, this article starts out uh, by talking about, uh, you know, maybe one of the ways to approach Donald Trump is that he's a mad king, and he he talks. He and frankly, there is a that's that's part of where you're constantly adjusting reality. That's that's kind of it's kind of like that. I mean. Um, you know, as a historian, you know, you kind of you, – you, you read about people trying to survive Nero's court or Caligula's court and uh, it usually – you know, most of them – you know, most of them didn't. Occasionally someone did. But, uh, um, you know, it, it feels a little bit like that in terms of particularly you have to be constantly ready to readjust your notion of the truth to whatever the, um, the monarch who, you know, he does, act, he does seem to have a sense of – the president, that he would just get to do everything that he wanted to do. That seemed to be a little bit, because that's what he's done basically in his life, do whatever he wanted to do. And now I'm the president of the most powerful country in the world, so I get to do whatever I want to in the world. doesn't quite work that way, hopefully, so far. I think, too, it's tough. Like, you know, in the Slate Political Gab Fest, they were talking about, you compared Jeff Sessions' confirmation hearing to, like, Rex Tillerson. He's like, CEOs of big companies, they're not used to being pushed. He's like, you know, senators, they have to basically BS all the time. So you, he's like, a, a Senator Jeff Sessions, if he, had to, if he had to sort of respond to questions about Madagascar dance traditions, he could probably do 10 minutes and made you think he knew something about it because <laughs> right. that's what senators do all day. And they're used to being, in, uh, you know, accountable to constituents and committees. And, you know, it, so this is one of these things that, that, that for someone like Donald Trump who ran a really boutique operation. I mean, that's the thing about the Trump organization, too, that I think people don't understand like these like LLC corporations that we, like the company, it, its size and scope is through all these sort of deals cut right. into like, it's right. not like he's the CEO of all these things. So really the, the actual organization is a pretty small group of people, right. a boutique kind of thing in Trump Tower. So it's, it's not like he's 
He's. I, I think this is a, a, a lot of business guys going to politics. Like, look at Mitt Romney, and sometimes he would even get irritated with Fox. Right. And that's because, like, if you're big, so you, you say, like, journalist stuff that's like business journalism, where they're saying, how did you make all this money? Or how'd you, you know, you, like, all of a sudden, you're not used to, like, this is why, I mean, political experience sometimes is, is a valuable thing. Oh, because no. you're used to getting your teeth kicked in by people that would, like, well, you know, like, wait. Right. He's never been in, he's never done any politics or he's never been in the military. So he's not used to any kind of order other than what he makes. Right. So yeah. this is, this is a challenge. Yeah. No, it, it has been kind of an interesting, interesting week. And I do, I do think there's a sense where, um, it, it is, a, it's a moving target, by the way, or I think Orrin Hatch has lost his mind too. Since we, as we're, if we're listing, if we're listing politicians who have lost their mind, I mean, a long-term conservative Senator, distinguished guy, people, I mean, he and friends, he and Ted Kennedy were best friends. So someone who, at one point, represent the gentlemanly, or you know, the, was able to make build bridges. But did you see what his chief complaint uh, about what Elizabeth Warren accusing Sessions of being a racist was? You know why he thought it was good that she was censured because because what about her his what about Sessions' wife? What if she hears what Elizabeth Warren said? She'll be offended. <laughs> All right, it's a, yeah. it's 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 a, it's a strategy. And, and, and one level, given the world we live in, what's going on? Why, that there is still someone who's worried about someone's feelings. There's something kind of quaint, yeah. quaint about that. But uh, um, I think it's been open season with spouses for a while in this, <laughs> this political yeah, environment, uh, as uh, our beloved president has modeled again and again. So and one, again. one of the things Sullivan talks about, because you and I were talking about this, how like we've we mentioned this before, how. When people, you know, Paul Ryan, four years ago, before he was made speaker, said, you know, they were asking him what the biggest problem in the country is. You think, he's like, you think going to say deficits or this, economy? it's not. It's relativism, specifically moral relativism. Now it seems like, so that's always something that it seems like historically the right and traditionalists kind of attacked the left for, like, because of... Emotivism, relativism. Right, relativism, multiculturalism, everybody has their own truth. Yeah. Now that, I mean, one of the things that points, Andrew Sullivan points out is that there's this there's this disregard for empirical reality. And so right. you say, you know, that this is, it's like what we talked about, about the difference between truth, lies, and, and bullshit a couple of weeks ago. Like, so, you know, it, 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 all politicians lie, all politicians say the truth, but generally they play some deference to the concept of the reality <laughs> of truth. It's like, again, we said, you have to familiarize yourself with the truth in order to shade it a little bit. But it, it seems like we're in a spot where there, we, the alternative facts and the, this kind of, where it's just... There's not even a deference to the truth, so that you can deceive. You just say what you want to say, right? And just insist that there are some people that say some people say it's true. I mean, there are people, and so that I I worry about what that does to the social fabric, like right to to the reality, whether it's Republican or Democrat. And I think again, with Sullivan, is not pretty, he's he, pretty independent. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's and he, but he's. He's actually a right of center kind of guy, self-described, right. but he's pretty honest about how this is politicians, you know, are are a crafty lot. But he said it's just this seems like a new normal. Yeah, and that's why we, you know, all the you know allusions to nineteen eighty four to what happens in really third world dictators. <laughs> I was I was thinking a little bit. Uh, uh, maybe some of our listeners don't remember, but Idi Amin. I mean, it comes to mind a little bit, you know, the craziness that was going on around that person. I mean, he, he did incredibly, I mean, he, you know, there was all kinds of 
war crimes and, and thousands and thousands of his people were killed in Uganda. But there's been, you know, there was a movie about it, there's been stories about it, written about it. But just being around him was always so unpredictable. And that was part of what kept people, you know, on their edge. It's part of what, it, it, it's part of what allowed him to become such a, uh, a power of one that did so much damage to that country and, you know, thousands and thousands of people were killed. Now, again, I'm not making the moral equivalency between Donald Trump and Idi Amin, but it's when he talks, when, when Sullivan calls him the mad king, there, that's part of it is you don't know what's real and what's not real. And, and, and the interesting thing, if it is a strategy, if they're purposely doing it, then it is the very thing of evil. I mean, uh, you know, what in, in Zoroastrianism, evil, the, the devil was the, they are the people of the lie. I mean, in other words, there's a sense where, uh, and, and in, in the gospel, the unforgivable sin was blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. And in essence, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is when you call good bad and bad good. Yeah, and again, this is what we talked about a few weeks ago. Frank, Harry Frankfurt's book on the truth thinks that part of the the ver, the morality of the truth is that it requires you to engage reality, which teaches you where you're circumscribed, where you're limited as a creature. Like where it, it, reality impinges itself on you, and I think that that is part of human maturation. And so, when you live in it, in, in your own reality, it, it I mean, it again it. There's a tyrannical nature to that kind of deception because it, it it makes you as a subject subjected to my reality in a way right. that, that there's no shared reality that where we can see ourselves both um, in an I-thou kind of thing. It's it, I think that kind of deception necessitates I-it relationships. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other dimension of classic understanding, what, you know, again, Christian understanding of evil is... Well, there's multiple understandings, but one of the more traditional ones is it's a negation. So the only positive, I'm putting that in quotation marks, power that evil has, it's of the lie and fear. And that's part of what, if, if, you, if you look at what's going on just in this cultural moment, a, there is the drumbeat of fear, being afraid of, you name it, and also this, this constant slippery sense of, Alternative facts, truths, not truths, and things like that. And so, if if it is, um, it's either evil by by intentionality, okay, or it's evil by default because of a lack of a grasp of reality. It, it, the end result can be the same. In other words, you know, the difference between a rational uh, despot and a irrational despot is still tyranny. So, I mean, I'm overstating that, but I think. That's what the the truth stuff is very very disturbing, and that's as Andrew Sullivan and many of us are um, not in right and left uh, and centrist um, concerned about what's going on, and and not even what's going on, but how it's going on. I think as much as anything else. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I we I'm hopeful that it's not the new normal that we that we kind of that we don't live in a world of alternative facts and. Although again, the the, uh, the echo chamber stuff. Reinf- I mean, in some ways, like it's chicken or the egg stuff, right? Like, right, it, right. It, it does the kind of echo chambers we've increasingly developed because of things like social media and whatnot that allow us to have much more homogenous right. kind of social circles and communication networks. Is that what creates the situation for the new normal? You know, it's not. I mean, I think it. That might be. This might be 
the natural outgrowth of, of some of what has been developing over the past years. Yeah. It's interesting in this article, and I would commend it to you because he shifts gear at the end. And he talks, although just our conversation, I, I, I initially, the first time I read it, I didn't see the connection, but I think there is one. And he's seen the movie Silence twice. I, I actually have not seen it. Uh, Neither have I. I, I want to see it I, soon. I do want to go see it. And uh, you and I talked about going and seeing it, but um, we haven't gotten there yet. And we may have to drive a ways to get there now. But uh, it, it really is a poignant matter of fact. I put it on my Resident Exile Facebook page, but it, it's, yeah, I think it's worth quoting in full because um, it's, it's just remarkable what he says. So he's talking about the movie Silent, and the story is in the backdrop of the persecution of Christians in Japan. Um, I should know what century that was. Is that it's the 16th, 16th, yeah. 16th century, right? And it's uh, Scorsese's done this film on, about, it's called Silence. And it's about one uh, priest struggle to find his way in this horrible situation. So here's what, he, here's what he says. For some secular liberals, faith is some kind of easy, simple abdication of reason, a liberation from reality. For Scorsese, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery and often inseparable from crippling perpetual doubt. You see this in the main protagonist evolution, from a certain abolitionist arrogance to a long sacrifice of pride towards a deep spiritual truth. Faith is a result in the end of living, of seeing your previous certainties crumble and be rebuilt, shakily on new grounds. God is almost always silent, hidden, and sometimes most painfully so in the face of hideous injustice or suffering. A life of faith is therefore not real unless it is riddled with despair. Yeah, I, I think that is absolutely true. Yeah, and I think it's true, but in a way that you can't hold in a propositional statement. It's something that you walk, you see, you bear witness to, and you pray and scream out sometimes in the, in the silence and the darkness. different. 